following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. you to take God's word this morning and turn with me to the second letter of the Apostle Peter and chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 18 as we make our way through this little letter. But I'd like to begin reading at verse 12 and make our way through verse 21 just to get the wider context of our passage this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 12 through 21 As always, brothers and sisters, it's with a profound sense of privilege and gratitude and honor that I invite you, as the people of Christ, to hear and heed the words of the true and living God this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What Peter, the apostle, is doing here in chapter 1 is reminding the early church of the saving knowledge within them. In chapter 2, he'll go on to talk about the false teachers among them. And then in chapter 3, he will explain the blessed hope before them. In verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1, Peter states one of the main reasons for writing this letter. He wants the church to be able to recall and remember the truth even after he has departed from this world. He's concerned about the church's future. He's concerned about the church's purity. He's concerned about the church's protection. As a true shepherd, he's concerned for the long-term health of the church. He isn't just here to get all that he can from the church while he's here. No, he's spending and being spent in order to see to it that the church is better off when he's gone. He's a true shepherd. And so he takes measures to do everything he can so that even after he's gone, the church has what she needs in order to be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And after stating the purpose of this letter, he begins in verse 16 to explain the reliability and the dependability and the trustworthiness of his message, especially as it pertains to and has to do with the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, 
One of the chief errors that the false teachers in Peter's day were propagating in the church was that Jesus would not return. Jesus would not come again. And also they were saying that history would continue on as it is and never culminate with a final judgment. It would continue on as it is. I want you to see this. Turn with me, if you will, quickly to chapter three, because what Peter is doing here in our present passage this morning is giving us a foretaste of what he's going to tackle in chapter three. Second Peter chapter three, look at verse one with me. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So you see these scoffers, these mockers would come and have come even in Peter's day. Remember, the last days began with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so these false teachers had already come and infiltrated the church. You find that in chapter two, verse one. They're already among us, Peter says. And they're going to be denying three things. The coming of Christ, the reality of creation, and the reality of the flood. Why those three things? Because one has to do with accountability, creation. He made us. We are the people of his creating. Therefore, we are accountable to him. And they deny the second coming as well as the flood back in Genesis because the God to whom we're accountable is a God who comes to judge in righteousness all peoples of the earth. And so it's convenient for false teachers. It's convenient for the lost. It's convenient for the unbeliever to deny creation and to deny any form of judgment, any, any historical judgment or any future judgments. Why? Well, Peter narrows it down. The reason they scoff, the reason they mock is there at the end of verse three of chapter three, their own sinful lusts. You see, people deny the truth. They suppress the truth, not because the truth makes no sense, but because they want to continue living in their lusts, in their pleasures, in their godlessness. By the way, you find this also in Romans chapter one, if you turn there quickly with me. Romans chapter one, turn to your left. Peter is affirming the very same thing Paul affirms in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter one, beginning at verse 18. Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you see the reason they're suppressing the truth is because of their unrighteousness. It has nothing to do with what's rational, what makes sense, what's reasonable. No, no, no. It has to do with their unrighteousness. He says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He says in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So you see, let's go back to Peter. Peter is affirming the same thing that Paul affirms, that scoffers will come and they will mock and they will scoff and they will joke about creation and any kind of judgment, not because it doesn't make sense, but because it doesn't fit with their pursuit of their godless pleasures. That's the reality that the Bible teaches. So what Peter's doing here is he's affirming that Christ is coming again, that the day of the Lord is at hand, and that history will be interrupted drastically, chaotically, with like no other interruption in the history of the world. What interruption will it be? Well, he will go on in chapter 3 to talk about the details of that. A coming day of God, he says. Fire and loud interruption. And so, this is what Peter is addressing today. He's addressing two issues. The promise of Christ's coming and the certainty of divine judgment. And so in verses 12 through 21, where we find ourselves this morning... Peter is laying the grounds for why he and the other apostles preach and teach the second coming of Christ. He's laying the grounds as to why he believes that and why he preaches it and why he teaches it, why he wrote about it in his first letter, why he's affirming it again in his second letter. And if you want somewhat of an outline for verses 16 through 21, in verses 16 to 18, we see the apostolic witness to the powerful coming of Christ the apostolic witness to the powerful coming of Christ. And then in verses 19, 20, and 21, you have the Old Testament witness to Christ's power and coming. So in other words, Peter is saying, we've witnessed his coming, his second coming, which sounds mysterious, but we're going to see how that makes sense within this context. And also he's saying, more than that, we have the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament attesting to the fact that he will come and he will judge and make all things new. Let's begin at verse 16. So verse 15 ends, again, with him saying, I will make every effort so that after my departure, after my exodus, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. The word cleverly devised means to make wise. It has to do with subtly concocting ideas for the purpose of deceiving people. Now, obviously, Peter is addressing the fact that more than likely the false teachers were accusing the apostles of cleverly devising myths regarding the second coming, cleverly devising fables, fairy tales that Christ would come again. Peter's saying, no, no, we did not cleverly devise anything. We were eyewitnesses of his whole thing. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There's no deceit here. There's no trickery here. There's no games here. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, muthos, from which we get the word myth. It was referred to, or in that day, you talked about the, you had the, the Greek mythology. You had Greek myths. Peter says, this has nothing to do with mythology. Look at that word made known, norizo. It, it's often used in the New, the New Testament to refer to giving of new revelation, the unveiling of a, a mystery. You find that in John 17, 26. Father, I made known your name to my disciples, which had not been made known before in its fullness until Christ came, because in him we see the fullness of God, the radiance of God's glory. It has to do with new revelation. So when, what Peter's saying here is that when we made known For the first time, with utmost clarity, that Christ will return. We weren't following cleverly devised uh, tales or myths when we made known, when we imparted this new, complete revelation concerning the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the matter at hand is there in verse 16. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, we have to ask ourselves here, is he talking about the first coming or is he talking about the second coming? I believe he's talking about the second coming because the first coming was not characterized primarily by a powerful coming. He came initially as a suffering servant. In fact, as we read Isaiah 53 earlier, we saw that he came and he was despised and rejected by men. He came as a meek, humble lamb to go to the slaughter, speechless, without saying or raising any objections. He came in weakness. He came in humility. He came, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, and he emptied himself and he made himself low, lower than the angels, Hebrew says. He came low. He came despised. Oh, his glory was there. John tells us that. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen his power at work, for sure, in raising the dead, in healing the sick, and in casting out demons. But by and large, the first coming was not characterized by power, dunamis, dynamite power. No, that power was veiled under the cloak of humility and lowliness in his first coming. But the other and main reason I believe he's referring to the second coming here is because of the word coming itself. The word perusia in the Greek. Over 15 times in the New Testament, when you find perusia connected to Jesus Christ, it's always referring to his second coming in power. And by the word, most Greek scholars believe that power and coming are what's what you, what you call a hendiadis. So it's more, more like his powerful coming or his coming in power. That's what he's talking about. And you remember that oftentimes when Jesus referred to his second coming, that's where he introduced the word power. You will see the Son of Man coming with the glory of his angels at the right hand of power. He will come with power, come with might. That's why we are talking about the second coming this morning. I want you to see some key passages regarding Christ's powerful coming. I want to point you to three of them. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 quickly. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you'll see that his coming is a coming in power, a coming with might. This is what the false teachers are denying, that he will not come again to finish what he started. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let your eyes fall there at verse 5. This is evidence, the Apostle Paul says, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you were also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, his power, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So you see, Paul understood the second coming of Christ to be characterized by might, by strength, with unparalleled power. Turn to the end of the book now, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. The Apostle John writes in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp 
sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, this coming is a coming with indescribable power. He comes to strike down the nations in his second coming, which is contrary to what we read in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, where he said that he would come in his first coming and sprinkle many nations, shed his blood for many peoples. But after those people have been gathered in, after that last elect sinner has been called to the glory of Christ and by the glory of Christ, he will, he will descend from heaven with a cry of command and he will come with power again. The last passage I'll have you turn to is in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. Jesus, towards the end of his days, says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him he will... Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And as you continue to read, which you can read later on, the entire thing culminates in verse 46, where he says, and these, his enemies, will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. But it all begins with his return in power. And so back to 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is saying we weren't following cleverly man-made, man-concocted myths when we made known to you, we, the apostles, when we revealed to you that Christ would come again in power and glory. His powerful coming, his coming in power. By the way, the word coming can mean presence, but could also mean an arrival. And when you put the two together, back in that day, uh, the word perusia or coming would refer to a king who would come and stay in a certain land or to a, a, a god coming to dwell and remain with his people. And so when we talk about the perusia of Christ, the second perusia, the second coming of Christ, we're talking about Christ coming to stay and to permeate the new creation with the presence of God which is why we read at the end of the book that there will be no need for lamp or sun or moon because his glory, his presence will permeate the entire cosmos. So Christ is coming, not just to come and to depart again, he's coming to stay. He's coming to what's rightfully his. He's coming to inherit what the Father promised him. A new creation filled with people who are made new in him. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The word eyewitness in the Greek means an observer. And it was used in that day to refer to, when it came to false religions, the initiate, the, the, the chosen few of that god or that goddess who would be taken up and, and, and privileged to see something that that god would reveal to them. Right? This, is the, the, the sec, this is the top tier privilege that we're talking about. And what Peter is saying here is that we weren't just your typical eyewitnesses. We were at the top of the top type of witnesses. And you remember, it was often Peter and James and John who were singled out among the 12 
to see Jesus either raise the dead or to see him transfigured, as we're going to see in a moment. Peter is saying, we didn't make this stuff up. We were granted the great, great privilege to witness his second coming. What does that mean? Hold your horses until the next few verses. We witnessed his powerful coming. We observed it. We beheld his majesty. The word majesty in the Greek has the word mega in it. He's referring to his splendor, his magnificence. We beheld his majesty, his prominence, his grandeur. It was used of God in Luke chapter 9. It was, it was ascribed to God, the majesty of God. This is, a divinely, uh, this is a divine word to talk about the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. But again, the point of Peter here is not to call attention to the deity of Christ, but to the fact and the truthfulness and the reliability and the dependability of the fact that he will come again in glory, in power, in majesty, and in might. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now look at the next verse. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, he's talking about one moment in history here. When he received honor, that is praise and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory words that were used in the place of God in the Old Testament because they wouldn't say his name often. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. When was this? For we were with him on the holy mountain. So apart from that little phrase at the end of verse 18, we might be led to believe that he's referring to Jesus' baptism where the father spoke up and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There were three times when um, the Lord God Almighty spoke from heaven in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once at his baptism, again at the end of um, the, uh, the, the book of signs, right, in the gospel of John, where the Father speaks from heaven, I will glorify it, and I will glorify it again, speaking of Christ's name. But then there was this third time where on the Mount of Transfiguration, God spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Some accounts say, listen to him. Well, Peter was there, and for the purpose of his argument here, he's recalling what he remembers about that thing, about that day. Now, you might say, what does this have to do with the second coming? Peter is speaking as if the second coming has already happened, as if he already witnessed the majesty of Christ in the second coming. What is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the transfiguration, and therefore I point you there now. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Beginning in verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now listen to this. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Mark's version of this, he says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then Luke's version of this, 
Luke 9, 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So he's in all of the accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, there are some standing here who will not die until they see the kingdom of God coming with power, after it has come with power, after they see the kingdom of God. You would think he's saying that these guys are going to be, you know, put Methuselah to shame and live hundreds of years in order to last until the second coming. But that's not what he's doing here. Because each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, proceed to tell us what happens six to eight days after this promise of our Lord Jesus. Let's continue on in Matthew chapter 16. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Let me just read you Mark's account that Christian read earlier. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And then listen to Luke's version. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. It's interesting how these guys are just grasping for words, right? Luke says, dazzling white. Mark says, intensely white. Matthew says, radiant, right? Or sorry, Luke says, or Mark, Mark says, radiant. They're all describing the same event. And do you see what the transfiguration pointed to? The transfiguration was not fundamentally to show that Jesus is fully God. The transfiguration is not so that we can see, wow, this is the Son of God. No, the transfiguration is a foretaste of the second coming. That's what Peter is teaching us here. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were with him on the holy mountain. When we made known to you the powerful coming of Christ, when we expounded upon the second coming, when we explained the return of Christ, we weren't making these things up. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty when we were with him on that holy mountain. And when, he, when we go back to see what happened there, we see that Jesus gives them a teaser, a preview. Modern language, we might think of it as a trailer, right? Of what's to come. When he will return on that day, Brilliant, radiant in brightness, his face shining like the sun with the glory of God. When he comes with his divine presence to interrupt world history on that last day, to judge the nations, he will come with his presence and he will stay and he will eventually make all things new. You see, the transfiguration is a preview of the second coming. That's what Peter is teaching us here. That's why when Mark says, or when in Mark's version, you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That was referring to the transfiguration. Luke's version, you who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And of course, Matthew's version, you will not taste death until you see the son of man coming in his kingdom. And that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Peter can talk as though he's already seen the second coming because he has seen a preview of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the point of this passage. He points to the fact that he was an eyewitness. He was an observer of these things. In other words, in Peter's mind, he says, based on what I saw that day, how his face was altered, how his entire appearance was altered, I, it, it, it's as good as done. He will come again. It was so 
opposite to what he had seen in our Lord, who had no place to lay his head. It was so opposite to what he had seen in Christ, being despised and rejected and, and not, you know, no honor in his own hometown, rejected by the chief priests. He says, what I saw that day on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's coming and it's going gonna, it's gonna to rock this entire world. John says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the families on the earth will mourn and wail on account of his coming. It will be glorious and it will be dreadful, depending on which side of the line you are standing on. It will be your greatest day or it will be your worst day if you are his enemy. Peter says, these guys are denying the powerful second coming of Christ. He says, I've seen it. I've seen just a glimpse of it. When for that moment... I saw past his lowliness, past his humility, and I saw him coming in his kingdom in power to stay. He saw it. He saw it. Notice verse 18. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Sorry, 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, who were with him on the holy mountain. Peter, in verse 16, alludes to the fact that he was an eyewitness. But now, in verse 18, he alludes to the fact that he's also an ear witness. He saw and he heard, right? This is reminiscent of what we find in the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote for Theophilus to be able to have an orderly account of the things that they had seen and heard. John begins his epistle by saying, that which we have seen and heard and have handled with our own hands. You see, the, the, the apostles were not ashamed to point back to the fact that they were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ, the glory of Christ, the initial coming of Christ. That's important. You even find that, that pivotal chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is expounding upon the centrality and vital importance of the resurrection of Christ. And he speaks of the fact that there were 500 witnesses to his resurrection. We read that stuff and we're like, well... We really can't prove that. No, but the people in his day could. He says, many of whom are still alive. When he says that, that's his way of saying, go and investigate. You're bound to see someone, meet someone who saw the risen Christ. They're all still alive. You see, Peter is an eyewitness. So Christianity is not necessarily a, this, this, it's not at all this kind of mystic, secret religion Christianity is history, it's his story, it's historical. There were eyewitnesses, there were historical acts, there were deeds that were done, there, were te- there, were, there, were, there, was a, there was one who came and dwelled among us. People saw his glory and they wrote about him. And even John says, we, there's not even enough books in the world to, to write about all that he did. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ came and he gave people not just hope for this life, but hope for the present life. And he gave his closest disciples a glimpse of his second coming. And that was enough in Peter's mind to say, don't listen to these false teachers. Don't listen to these mockers, these scoffers who are denying that he's coming again. They're going to be coming, I know, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Uh, All things continue on as they were from the beginning of creation. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, our ancestors are gone. All things continue on. Peter says, no, no. You have no idea what we saw that day, church. We were witnesses of of this on the holy mountain. Now, this is interesting, the language here. This is my beloved son, number one, with whom I am well pleased, number two. And the location is very key, verse 18. We were with him on the holy mountain. Many commentators and scholars point back to the fact that Peter is alluding to Psalm 2. 
Psalm 2, where you find the reign of Yahweh's anointed one, his Messiah. It's kind of like a play. There's a scene in heaven, and then there's a scene on earth. And it goes back and forth, back in heaven, back on earth. Turn to Psalm 2 with me. I want you to see this with your own eyes. I want you to be an eyewitness of this yourself and an ear witness of God's word this morning, just like Peter. Psalm 2. He says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, this is not the second time that the church, the early church, has taken Psalm 2 and applied it to Jesus and his mission. You find in the early chapters of the book of Acts, it was a common thing. They understood, Peter understood, that Jesus is God's anointed one who had come to be installed as king, God's final King, the, the, the eschatological son of David, right? The promised son of David. That's why he starts with Romans in Romans chapter one, saying that Jesus is a descendant of David according to the flesh. In other words, Jesus is the son of David, the promised Davidic king who came, who received the father's approval. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. My point in going with this is that many commentators believe that Peter here, when he's talking about Jesus on the holy mountain, hearing you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, that Peter's thinking back on Psalm 2, where the psalm talks about this holy hill, this holy mountain, and God saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There's also an allusion to Isaiah chapter 42, When Peter records the father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's language that comes right out of Isaiah 42 where Isaiah records this coming Messiah to be a servant of Yahweh. He's coming and God says, behold my servant whom I uphold. And here it is, the allusion to my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, Yahweh says. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So do you see the context is justice and righteousness and this, this one being pleasing to Yahweh. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So many believe that Peter is referring to the fact that Jesus is the promised son of David. And he is the suffering servant who came to lay down his life for his people. And so back finally to 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is saying, I know that now 
And after my departure, like Paul says, fierce wolves are going to come in among you. They're going to infiltrate the church. They're going to be in the pews, and some of them are going to be in the pulpits. And eventually they're going to be saying things like, where is the promise of his coming? Peter's saying they're going to say that because they want to continue living in their lusts. And we're going to see that in chapter 2, how they live, how they behave, how they conduct themselves. It's not for concern for the church. It's, con- it's, it's, it's a self-pleasing uh, agenda. It's to exploit the church, to, to take from the church, and to be satisfied in their own pursuits and their own pleasures. And Peter's point here is that, no, 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 he is coming again. Because we saw a glimpse of his second coming on the Mount of Transfiguration. We heard the majestic voice from God the Father say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the promised Son of David. This is the promised suffering servant. He came the first time as the suffering servant to deal with our sin. But he will come again, as Hebrews chapter 9 says, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so the point that Peter is making here is that church, you can bank on this truth that I'm laying down here so that you can recall it after I'm gone. After I'm gone, my words will continue to speak. After I'm gone, I will continue to testify. I know what I saw on this holy mountain. I know what I heard on this holy mountain. Christ will come again in glory and judgment. Do not listen to any teacher, no matter his degree, no matter his theology. If he comes and says, hey, everything's just going to continue on as it was. So our takeaways this morning are a number of things. We are not dealing with myth myths. We're not dealing with fables. We are not dealing with tales. We are dealing with firsthand eyewitness accounts of people who lived in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who testified of what they saw and what they heard. And you could fact check. I mean, today we're so, we got the whole fact checking thing wrong, right? I remember when people used to be able to go to Snopes, at least that's how it was, came, it was brought to me, you know, you hear this weird, far-off story, and you're like, oh, let me go to Snopes and, and see if this is true or not. There's nothing true in this world except for the truth of God's word. That, this is the only standard of, of, of truth here. This is the truth. Peter's saying here, what you guys have is the truth. We walked with him. We saw him. We heard the Father's voice. We saw the Son's glory. And he will be coming again. So, friends, I want to encourage you Look to Scripture as your ultimate standard, as your absolute standard of truth. Everything in this world is frail. It's faulty. There's agendas even behind news stories today. What you have to be certain is that you have the Word of God here and you have the truth of Christ. Secondly, how important is the second coming in your mind this morning. When the sky rips open like a torn scroll and you see the Son of Man coming in power in his kingdom with his mighty angels, every eye will see him. That's one thing that will be certain in that day is no news will be able to hide the coming of Christ. There's no news agency that will be able to alter the news in any way. Every eye will see him. Everyone will mourn on account of him. He will bring relief, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Relief to his people. Relief to his saints. He will bring that eschatological rest, that, that once and for all rest to his people. As he then permeates the earth with his presence. And with the presence of his father. So much so that we will look around on that day and we will see, as Revelation records, even his name written on all our foreheads. Everything will be holy. Everything will be sacred. When I look at Stephen, I'll think of Christ because his name will be on Stephen's forehead. Now, I get that that's apocalyptic you know, language, but the point is that he will be everywhere. 
He will be everything. And Peter's saying, we're testifying of these things. This is not myth. This is not, this is not fairy tale. We know what we saw. We know what we heard. And again, that's Peter's way of saying, go ask. You're bound to find someone who, who, who saw these things as well. And so we have the truth and we have the certainty of his second coming. It's interesting as we're going to look next week at verses 20, uh, 19 through 21 that we really have, um, the, you know, the passages just saturated with the Trinity. We have the Father bearing witness to the Son. We have the Son giving his disciples a preview of his second coming. And as Peter's going to go on next week to teach us, more than just our eyewitness experience, more than just our ear witness testimony, we have the prophetic scriptures given to us by the Spirit of God testifying to the fact that he will come and he will judge and he will establish justice and righteousness in the earth, which is why he'll say in his third chapter that he will make a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. See, For those of you who are outside of Christ this morning, know that the world will not always continue as it is. Your life will not always continue as it is. Now, granted, I do hope that the return of our Lord is in our lifetime. I do. And I, I pray, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. My, my heart is also torn when I pray that because I know that there are so many people, even close loved ones, that are not ready to meet the Lord as his enemy. And so for those of you who are outside of Christ today, consider even this hour this time together as the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ extending towards you, extending towards your lost soul, inviting you, calling you out of your Egypt, out of your sin, out of your pursuit of sinful pleasure and into his kingdom where you find forgiveness and righteousness and resurrection and the hope of being with him in the new creation forever. For those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the message that we are declaring to people is not myth. We need not be ashamed that the basis, the ground of our belief is built upon historical eyewitness, earwitness accounts. We need not be afraid of that. Now, again, Peter could have thrown out something that is better than eyewitness testimony, right? He knows he's writing for a future time. I'm writing these things so that when I depart, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And what Peter lays down for the church to sink her teeth into, to hold this truth, is what he and, and James and John experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's not ashamed. Neither should we be ashamed of the fact that we have the testimony of witnesses who lived in the presence and in the day of other eyewitnesses. And more than that, we have the scriptures who have testified of his first coming to the T, fulfilled those prophecies precisely and perfectly. And because of that, we have hope that he'll come again, exactly as the scriptures foretell. Let's stand.